1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. This week's guest is Mariel Schindler. She's a lawyer who heads the employment law team at the London firm Withers LLP, where she's also partner. She's a patron of the writing charity Arvon, and she and her husband Jeremy have three adult children. Her first book, The Lost Cafe Schindler, was recently published. Mariel spent her adult life trying to keep her father, Kurt, at bay. Kurt Schindler had a difficult relationship with truth. When he died in 2017, he left behind piles of Nazi-era documents related to their family's fate in Innsbruck, Austria, and a treasure trove of family photo albums reaching back to before World War I. Mariel was forced to confront not only their fractured relationship, but also the truth behind their family history. Sit back and settle in. We're in for a fascinating conversation with Mariel Schindler. Mariel, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thank you, Chris. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be here with you.
1: Mariel, I believe most of our audience is familiar with Schindler's list, but if you would, please set the stage by sharing the story of Oscar Schindler, because in a peripheral way, his famous name is an entry point for us, the story of your father, Kurt, and the larger narrative that you wrote.
2: Yes, Chris, you're, you're quite right. I mean, one of the many, many famous people my father claimed we were related to was Oscar Schindler. I have to say, I have looked into it, I'm afraid we are not actually related, or if we are related, it is so far back in time that it's certainly not something one would normally brag about. So, Oscar Schindler, as people will remember, is the hero of Schindler's List, the Spielberg film, and indeed the the book Schindler's Ark by Thomas Keneally. And he was actually, he was not Jewish. He was a card-carrying Nazi who used Jewish labor in his factory Um, And then realized what was going to be happening to the Jews and then saved several thousand Jews who were working for him in his factory. So he 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 became someone who was a saver, a savior of Jews rather than someone who was a killer of Jews. But he was not related to my family, although my father liked to claim that he was.
1: And what was the Cafe Schindler, which your grandfather founded? What was it like?
2: Ah, the Café Schindler was an amazing place. So it was founded in 1922 when my grandfather returned from the First World War. And this was, I mean, all wars are horrible, but this was a particularly horrible war fought up in the mountains between Austria, as it is now, and Italy. Um, And, you know, he returned from that war to a country that was destitute. And in amongst that economic chaos, he decides to open a dance café, almost an almost frivolous act, if you like. And this was, it became a triple-fronted building in in a, in a small town in which he lived, in Innsbruck, in the in Tyrol, in Western Austria. And it was the place to go. It was the first, one of the first places that you heard jazz in Western Austria. And you could dance there. You could have a cup of coffee there. You could have exceptional cakes. You could play bridge. You could play pool. There were two dance halls in there. So it was an extraordinary enterprise in a small town. And anyone who was there, anyone basically went there to, to hang out, to dance and to have fun.
1: We need more places like that today. It sounds like. So would you please explain the book title? Why is it the lost cafe Schindler?
2: Well, uh, the cafe, as I said, was founded in 1922 and, uh, it was hugely successful except that my grandfather was Jewish. So in 1938, when the Nazis arrived in Austria and, uh, they marched into Innsbruck and one of the very first things they did was demand that my grandfather sell the cafe to a Nazi. So he, we lost the cafe for the first time as a family when it became essentially a Nazi officer's drinking club. And in that guise, it survived for seven years. It was extremely successful. Uh, it was renamed Cafe Hebel in that time. Uh, but people always remembered it was really the Jewish Cafe Schindler. And after the Nazis lost the war, the cafe was then restituted. So we regained the cafe, if you like. Um, My grandfather was one of the very, very few Jews who returned to Austria. And he returned because he loved the mountains. He loved his cafe. So he returned and he rebuilt his cafe. That went extraordinarily well until he died in 1952, sadly. And then the trouble started because my father inherited the cafe with a first cousin jointly and he promptly fell out with his cousin and that meant that the cafe then got sold a couple of years later and it essentially disappeared off the high street although it lived on in people's memories so we lost it a second time if you like. Um, Roll on to about 10 years ago when a young restaurateur from Salzburg Not very far from from Innsbruck, um, arrives in Innsbruck. He's fallen in love with a local girl and wants to open a cafe. And the site he chooses is the exact same site where we had had our family cafe. And he talks to his brother in law, brother in law to be, and says, I'm going to open a restaurant in in this site. And he talks to the planning officer and the licensing officer. And no matter who he talks to, they say to him, my friend, it's got to be called Cafe Schindler. He's like, yeah, who are these dudes? So he goes to the local archives, types in our name, and realizes that if he calls it Cafe Schindler, he has an inbuilt history. And so in in, in 2022, it'll be the centenary of this business. Now, okay, it wasn't there quite all the time, and it's no longer owned by my family, but I'm, I'm pretty pretty proud of the fact that there is now a cafe there a restaurant there on the first floor in the exact same site called the Schindler Cafe Schindler and it, it kind of epitomizes something about resilience of business and I think it's the only previously Jewish owned business still going in Innsbruck so it's a 100 year you know anniversary this, this year and I think that's something that's something quite special really No, we
0: absolutely. don't
2: own it we don't you know we don't own it we just go there occasionally for coffee so you know
1: once we get through this next round of uh, COVID 3.0 or 4.0, where we are, uh, any plans to go visit?
2: Definitely. I'm, I'm going this year. So when the, 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 the book is currently being translated into German, it's coming out in Germany and Austria and Switzerland in, at the end of March. And I'm going to be there because we're going to have a party in that cafe. It's, That's fantastic. It's a place for parties.
1: That's fantastic. Please keep us up to date on that. We'd love to, uh, love to go there. Yeah. yeah. So, so earlier I mentioned the larger narrative your book focuses on what happened to the Jews of Western Austria during the lead up to the war. How are their experiences different than that of Jews in other countries?
2: So when you think about cafes and Jews, you often think about Vienna. I think most people have that in their mind, the classic coffeehouse culture of Vienna. And Vienna had a lot of Jews. So in the, just after the First World War, 10% of the population in Vienna was Jewish. That's Eastern Austria. When you look at Western Austria, there were, in fact, very, very few Jews. Um, They formed a tiny percentage of the population. I think there were something like 500 Jews in Austria at the time the Nazis walked in under normal sort of characterisation. Under the Nuremberg Laws, there were about 700. So, I mean, it was a really, really small part of the population, unlike Vienna, which was 10%. And the Jews in Western Austria were... Usually, most of them were highly assimilated. They were business people. They lived totally peaceably alongside their Aryan neighbors. They were friends. They went to the same do's. They skied on the same mountains. They walked the same mountains in the summer. They were totally assimilated. In fact, my grandfather, I don't think he even thought of himself as Jewish. I mean, he was running a cafe. It was open on Friday nights and Saturdays. So he didn't keep kosher. He didn't think of himself as Jewish. He thought of himself as a Tyroller, a man from Tyrol in Western Austria. And that contrasts with the Jews in in Vienna. I'd say there were more of them in Vienna, but they were a lot of them were very, very poor. And so there's, there's two very different sort of types of people and the experience, which is what you're interested in, was very different in the sense that the Nazis were just as foul to the Jews of Western Austria. But... What I think was so surprising, I think, for my family was that given how assimilated they were, given how peacefully they lived with their neighbours, there was no reason for the, the, the local people to have the sort of virulent anti-Semitism that they had in Vienna towards Jews. And yet it was just as bad. And when you roll on to Kristallnacht, the, the pogrom in in November 1938, which was basically designed by the Nazis to drive the Jews out of the German Reich, um, when you when you turn to that and look at the actual statistics, the pogrom in Innsbruck in Western Austria was actually just as murderous, if not more so, than elsewhere. In that, three people died in that two two died on that night and one shortly afterwards. And so, there's something about the fact that. Despite being assimilated, despite being well-to-do, despite being born there, that anti-Semitism can come from nowhere and can be as as deeply unpleasant and murderous as elsewhere.
1: And I think this is where the story of your father comes in. He often told the story of Kristallnacht through his eyes as a youngster. First, what was Kristallnacht and what was the story your father claimed happened on that fateful night?
2: So what was Kristallnacht? That was the pogrom I just talked about in November 1938. Um, it was basically a state-organized pogrom, um, a night, Kristallnacht refers to basically the broken glass that you could hear on, on so falling to the pavements from Jewish shops and Jewish businesses. Um, it's quite a poetic name for what really was a pogrom. It was designed to frighten the life out of people. And so I tend to refer to it as a pogrom rather than Kristallnacht, although it's often known as Kristallnacht. Um, and so, what what was the what happened on that night was that my grandfather, who was um, you know a well-to-do businessman, was singled out, and a bunch of Nazi thugs were sent to their flat. They no longer lived in their villa; they would moved to a smaller flat that was. The main, the main governor of the area, moved into our villa. So they arrived at the flat at sort of two o'clock in the morning. They bang on the door. They come into the flat. And my father always told the tale as follows, which is they the, the thugs picked up his toboggan, so his sled, his childhood toboggan, which was in the foyer. It was winter. And they raised this toboggan, uh, which was had, had beautiful metal hoops and, and, and beautiful wooden hoops with metal on them to protect the, the, the hoops and they smashed it over my grandfather's head. He collapsed and then they basically stamped on his head with their nut boots. So my father used to describe that in quite some detail. a really horrific event. There was only one problem with that story. Yes, Kristallnacht happened. Yes, my grandfather was beaten up. Yes, the toboggan was used. But my father wasn't there he was already in London. So he told this tale as if he was there, but he wasn't. And that's a very interesting thing to have to, I suppose, face as a a child having heard this story, is I have very clear evidence that he was in London. And you can go a number of routes on this. You can say, well, maybe he felt guilty. It was his toboggan. So he kind of adopted the story and believed he was there. Or he lied about it. I don't know. I think he probably came to believe he was there, but he wasn't.
1: And you said that in your research, you've uncovered incontrovertible evidence that your father wasn't there that night. What did you find?
2: I think there were two pieces of evidence. One, um, the most shocking one, which was the first one I came across, was that after my father died, um, I inherited, he died destitute, but I inherited 13 photo albums which were full of extraordinary photos, some of them going back to pre-First World War times. Many of them are in the book. Um, and one of those photo albums was his childhood photo album. And he takes some snaps as he's coming over on the ferry from Austria. So he's fleeing Austria. And his first day in London with his mother says September 1938, first day with mummy in London. So In his own hand, he has clearly created the evidence that showed he was in London. There is no way that his mother, having got him to London, sent him back into the arms of the Nazis. He just clearly was in London. And the second piece of evidence, which I uncovered in an archive, where he was in, after the war, he was in a displaced persons camp near Salzburg, and it asks him on the form, which is asking for some money, when he left Austria. He said September 38th. when he was 24, he knew he'd left Austria in September, 38. So these things clearly don't match up and, you know, memory is a funny thing. We all have faulty memories and it, you know, I can believe that he came to believe it, but I know that he actually wasn't there.
1: So you mentioned before, you know, maybe he deliberately, you know, just had a faulty memory or he felt guilty. You know, why do you think he made it by others? or you're just pure speculation?
2: He's not here to ask. He's not here for me. He can't defend himself. But I think that it was also a convenient story to tell. So my father had a a difficult life where he felt the need to pursue a lot of litigation in order to get restitution of all of the assets that he felt the family had lost. And whereas most people would have pursued that restitution for maybe 10 years after the war, he was still doing that in his 80s. He was still doing that before he died. So in a sense, he he was trying to use the story of having seen Kristallnacht as part of those restitution claims, but he funded those restitution claims with very poor business decisions. And when he got into trouble with creditors or got into trouble with the court, he would inevitably go to a psychiatrist and trot out a story about his horrendous you know, experiences of a, of a 13-year-old, in Kristallnacht, and they would write up a story, or they'd write up a report about how, what he suffered, that he suffered from poor mental health, and this in some way explained his later behavior. So it was convenient, but he also probably came to believe it after a period of time.
1: So like you say, he's not here to defend himself. So whether that was a false memory or not, your father did make other claims. What were yes. some of the more outlandish things he told you and others about your family?
2: So like many kids, I stopped believing and stopped listening to endless family anecdotes. Sort of as a teenager, I think I was probably quite rebellious. Um, So the other extraordinary story that I never, ever believed as a child is my father used to boast that his uncle was a Jewish doctor in Upper Austria who treated Hitler and Hitler's mother. That doesn't, that doesn't compute, does it? That doesn't seem like something that would be true. And the strange thing about that particular story is it is actually true. So in 1907, um, there was a Jewish doctor who is was my, my, father's great uncle, my father's uncle, called Dr. Bloch in Linz, where Hitler lived. And in 1907, uh, he's in his surgery and a woman arrives in the surgery and he describes her, and I, 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 I know I've, I've got this on other, other evidence from Dr. Bloch himself. Um, and he describes her as a tall woman in her middle years with beautiful gray eyes. And she's complaining of terrible chest pains. And the doctor has a pretty clear idea as to what's wrong. Takes her name, Clara Hitler, Adolf Hitler's mother. He examines her and establishes that she has advanced breast cancer. And he says, look, I'm going to give you some painkillers. Go home and come back with your family. And I will explain what needs to happen. A couple of days later, she arrives back in the surgery with young Adolf Hitler in tow and her other kids, 17-year-old Adolf Hitler. And the good doctor explains that she has a breath, that that, that Clara Hitler has breast cancer and will need a double mastectomy. And that, you know, at this point, Adolf Hitler, as described by Dr. Bloch, breaks down in tears and says, is there no hope for my mother? And he says, well, look, this is difficult. This operation might help, but, you know, it is difficult. He then goes into overdrive. He arranges the operation. He is present during the operation. He goes straight over to the family home after the operation, explains it's gone as well as can be expected. Clara Hitler makes a bit of a recovery. I mean, you know, she's not very well, but she makes a bit of a recovery. And she eventually dies in 1908, and um, he, is, he, he writes out her death certificate. Hitler, Adolf Hitler, is enormously grateful to this Jewish doctor who looked after his mother with tremendous care, and he pays the bills and he shakes his hand and says, "The Hitler family will be eternally grateful to you." Now you roll on to 1938. Hitler returns with the cavalcade to Linz. There's all the shouting, you know, all the people saluting, all the airplanes flying above. above. And one of the things he asks is, is my house doctor, my old doctor still alive, Dr. Bloch? People are going, well, yeah, but, yeah. And Hitler leans back and is reported to have said, I kid you not, well, if all Jews were like Dr. Bloch, we wouldn't have a problem. So it was as if Dr. Bloch was his protected pet Jew. And as things got tougher and tougher for the Jews of Austria, Dr. Bloch was protected. He was told by the SS, nothing is going to happen to you. You can stay in your flat. Your ration card is not going to get stamped with a J. You can go out. There's no curfew. And it's like, yeah, but everyone else is being deported. And like, you know, so eventually Dr. Bloch doesn't eat. And he leaves with slightly more money in his pocket than other Jews. And he is allowed to leave in the 1940s. And he arrives in New York. And the reason I know all this is true is that the wonderful Washington Holocaust Museum has his handwritten autobiography. There's 40 pages where he describes all of this. So it is actually true.
1: Uh, That is fascinating. A few moments ago, you mentioned that you were a teenager when you realized your father's stories weren't what they all we're supposed to be. Did people tell you as you were growing up that he was making up stories or did others also believe him?
2: Well, that's a perceptive question. Um, I, I think people, well, adults worked out that, you know, a lot of what he was saying was not true. Um, or that if it, it was exaggerated, there was a fantasy wrapped around maybe a kernel of truth. So, you know, he, he just elaborated things a lot, and some things were just not true at all, like see the Kristallnacht story.
1: Another truth was that the Nazis, as you mentioned before, forced your grandfather to sell Café Schindler to someone who turned it into a drinking club for Nazi officers. That new owner ran into some trouble and nearly lost his life. What happened there?
2: So, as I said, the café got taken over by the Nazis, and um, it was run by a chap called Franz Hebel, and was renamed Café Hebel and um he was a good nazi apart from the fact he was also a black marketeer and oddly within the sort of german framework of morals and reference this business of being um what they called sauberkeit which is cleanliness like moral cleanliness was incredibly important black marketeering was a capital offense so when the people in berlin worked out that, that he was a black marketeer and he was importing goods into the cafe and selling them in the cafe, silk stockings, cognac, brandy, you name it, he did it. Um, they arrested him. And he was facing the firing squad, and I have read the legal papers relating to the, the the court case against him, the Nazi court case against him. He was facing the firing squad. And he he had the audacity to get in contact with Himmler. Now, Himmler was a very senior Nazi Himmler liked the cafe and something in, happened in that conversation that meant that Himmler essentially intervened to get him off the hook. He had a minor punishment, which was going to the front to fight for two weeks, two weeks only, and then he returned to run the cafe. So in some very peculiar way, the cafe saved this guy's life because it was such an important institution for morale that they wanted to run the cafe
1: let me take a step back you know you and I both mentioned the Nazis air quotes forced your grandfather to sell the cafe did he ever receive money from the sale
2: well as you probably know um, when the Nazis forced the sale of assets Jews well some some businesses they just closed down but the valuable ones they forced the sale of first of all it was always at an undervalue second of all the money got paid into a blocked account so mostly when the Nazis forced the sale, the Jews did not get the money. And the third thing is that when they then left the country, they were required to give up all their assets. So they were allowed, generally speaking, to, to emigrate with 10 rice which is a very small amount of money. Um, so the answer is to that, no. Um, roll on to after the war, there was restitution, and we did receive the cafe back, but as I said, um, my father was not terribly good at holding on to the cafe, so we lost it a second time.
1: <laughs> and your grandfather was deported to France, but not all of your family uh, was...
2: Yeah, it, not France, actually. Was, so my grandfather ended up in jail for a bit and then eventually managed to escape in 1939 and did arrive in the UK.
1: It, but not all of your family was spared, were they?
2: No. Um, one of the very sad things about this era is I mean, my, most of my family were incredibly lucky when they got out. They got out because they had some money and they had connections abroad that was what saved jews is when people were able to step forward and give affidavits that they would look after any jew coming in financially whether that was the us or whether that was the uk so most of my family got out however it was tricky getting out it was a very individual thing and um you needed you know some people got left behind and in particular my great grandmother sophie and my great aunt Martha and her husband got left behind. And increasingly desperate attempts were made to exit them from Austria. Unfortunately, that did not work and they ended up in Theresienstadt and my great aunt in
1: Auschwitz. You described your father as a hoarder and that after he died, you found papers on every surface of his cottage, which set you on your journey as an author. And you said some are mundane, others shocking and extraordinary. What shocked you most in terms of those papers relating to you and your siblings, and which ones from the Nazi era were most shocking and extraordinary?
2: So, two-part question. What shocked me most in relation to me uh, and my sister was the fact that my father had hired a private detective several times to basically tail his two daughters in our early 20s and find out which boyfriends we were going out with, etc. So, I mean, talk about overprotective dad. I mean, this is like taking it to extremes. <laughs> that was shocking. And then Nazi-era documents, they're kind of, they're difficult to read. I mean, they, they end with Karl Hitler. They've got swastikas all over them. And they say terribly oppressive and horrible things often. And, you know, those, those papers were not easy to read.
1: We've been talking to Mariusz Schindler, and we'll be right back after a short break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: and we are back with mariel schindler we've been talking about her book the Lost Café Schindler. Mariel, when did you start writing the book?
2: My father died in 2017, and I, we cleared out the cottage, and I had these documents. I didn't really know what to do with them, and they were, they were difficult, as I said. They were difficult documents to read, and I kind of put them away for a bit. So I, what I did start to look at was the photo albums, and like so many family albums, they didn't have names under the photos. And I was kind of curious as to who the people were and what they were doing in their long dresses, in their bonnets, you know, hurtling down mountains on toboggans. And there was a lot of mountain photography. And I was drawn in to try to work out who the people were. And when I realized that some of them hadn't made it out, I wanted to, sort of, to honor their memories. And understand what had happened to them. Um, I also had a lot of these, I suppose, these anecdotes from my father ghosting around my head. And I wanted to understand what was true and what wasn't true and where you know, what my background was, essentially.
1: And at what point did you recognize that it had a wider relevance than simply the story of just one family?
2: I... it it was a sort of creeping realisation because I was only ever going to write this up for my kids. I mean, that was really what was going to happen. I was going to put in a a lot of recipes and the photos and write up the narrative. And then the more I talked to people about it, they were going, but that's amazing. That's extraordinary. This is a proper book. And I'd never thought of it as a proper book. And eventually I talked to someone who, in fact, turned out to be a literary agent. And he said, yeah, yeah, this is a book. So, I sort of wrote the book despite myself, if you like. Um, so, yeah.
1: And some books are true labor of love for an author to write, others are not. I have to believe The Lost Cafe Schindler was a difficult story for you to tell. Am I right about that, or was it more of a labor of love?
2: It was a difficult story to tell, but I think a lot of writing gives you resolution and clarity. Mm-hmm. And it's something I do as a lawyer anyway. So, I do, I think writing is quite therapeutic. And I'd grown up feeling quite angry about my father. He had, been, he, he had been a very unstable force in our lives. And he'd gone to jail, dragged us from one country to another. You know, this was quite an unstable childhood. And um, by writing the book, what I realised was that although we hadn't inherited anything apart from papers and photographs from him... He he died destitute. Um, We had inherited an incredibly rich and interesting history, and in a sense, that's that's worth more than money. That's it's a more interesting thing to have, and that's what I value about it. So it was a labor of love, in some ways.
1: And did your career as a lawyer help you write this book? And if so, how?
2: Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, I think that I, I think as a lawyer, you're not frightened of piles of paper. Um, you know you have to you have to deal with a lot of paper or a lot of stuff on screen nowadays as a lawyer. so that doesn't worry me. Um, and the whole process of absorbing, analyzing, researching, synthesizing that is very much um, what lawyers do uh, and then explaining it to someone. So I think I think yes, being a lawyer really did help um, and apart from anything else, I was incredibly lucky because my wonderful law firm, gave me three months off as a sabbatical to write it up. So, you know.
1: Do you run into situations as you practice law where clients try to keep the truth from you or or just simply lie to you?
2: Yeah. Um, I think you have to be quite adept at spotting situations where a client might be trying to manipulate what they're saying or the, the facts. And I think one of the skills of a lawyer is to try and get to the bottom of about through inconsistencies or facial expressions, or how that doesn't smell like, does it? You know, and and yeah, sometimes you have to challenge your client for, for that reason.
1: And how do you deal with those situations? Is your professional response shaped at all, for better or worse, by your personal experiences?
0: I think
2: that yeah, I mean, I think we're all shaped by our personal experiences. I don't, I don't think we can get away from that. Um, but I do think that. Having this sort of background and having done this sort of research gives me also well, a lot of humility about these things, because I think it's quite a difficult task writing a book now. Um, uh, but also, I think it gives you insight into human nature. You know, you have to work out what people's motivation is and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I think writing a book helps you do that.
1: You just mentioned writing a book is a, a difficult task. You know, writing and publishing a book is a huge, huge accomplishment. So, kudos to you. What are the positives came from your work on the, the Lost Cafe Schindler? For instance, did you reconnect with any family members you hadn't seen in a long time, or that you never met?
2: Yeah, my father had had the talent of falling out with everyone. So, I reconnected with people. I um, took my courage in both hands and I rang people and emailed people and arranged calls. And then there would be this. Incredibly awkward, difficult moment where they were trying to work out whether I was my father's daughter and was going to be asking them for money or God knows what, dragging them into litigation or something. Anyway, um after that initial, I mean, uh, one of them, I, I flew out to Connecticut, not not far from where you are, um, and uh, flew out to meet this guy because he said he'd had some amazing photos. I thought, well, no time like the press. I've never done anything like this before, but I got on a plane and went to see him. And he opened the door. He's a really nice guy and uh, opened the door. And he said, yeah, I remember your father. He was a crook and a shyster. That was his opening comment. Okay, I've just flown (laughs) 3,000 miles to see you. (laughs) Anyway, I decided that I wasn't going to comment. I came in. We had some coffee. He showed me these astonishing photos that weren't in my albums but that he had from his family. And now we're firm friends. And I've managed to connect a whole bunch of people who didn't even know each other who fled to the US, as well as people in the UK, who, again, my father had fallen out with. So now I've got, I thought I always had a tiny family, but now I've got a much bigger family. It's really, really nice.
1: It's clearly international now as well. So that being said, do you wish you'd researched and written the book sooner? Would it have changed your relationship with Kurt?
2: I would never have been able to do it when he was alive. I just wouldn't. He he just was too mercurial, too difficult to deal with.
1: You were Jewish, and yet long after the war was over, your father didn't want you to tell anyone that you were Jewish. How did that shape the way you looked at your religion and how you practiced your faith?
2: Well, um, my father married out, married someone who wasn't Jewish. um, And I think that was deliberate. I think that was partly about leaving... Judaism behind him being as assimilated as he could be. And um, I think that, you know, that that makes the fact my mother isn't Jewish or wasn't Jewish means that I'm not technically Jewish. I have Jewish blood in my veins, but I'm only half Jewish and not technically Jewish, if you like. So I'm culturally Jewish, um, but I'm not, I'm not Jewish by faith. Um, Although I'm married to a Jewish man.
1: And did that cause you to view your father in a different light either more positively or negatively or is that a loaded question
2: um i think he made the decisions he made at a very particular point in time and he you know he always told us not to say to people that we were jewish and now that's i mean in this day and age that's extraordinary to hear that but actually for someone come out of the war that's not that's stupid. Being Jewish was dangerous. It was life endangering. So to protect his daughters, he always said, don't tell anyone you're Jewish.
1: Through some of the charity work I do, I work with a number of veterans who have experienced emotional and physical trauma that's caused depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and other mental health issues. Was your father ever diagnosed with a mental illness?
2: Well, when he went to psychiatrists to get himself out of the various legal messes he found himself in, um, he was diagnosed with various things, narcissistic disorder, personality disorder, a whole bunch of things along those lines, most of which aren't very treatable and which he never sought treatment for. He only went and got those psychiatric reports really in order to bail himself out of difficulties.
1: Family secrets, unfortunately, are not uncommon. A 2017 study about secrecy concluded that most people have five deep, dark secrets about everything from finance, sexual orientation relationships, to their mental health, criminal behavior, and past physical or sexual abuse. Living with family lies and secrets can lead to a number of mental health challenges. How did your life's experiences, dealing with decades of questions about what was true and what was not, affect your well-being and the well-being of others? What did you do to take care of yourself?
2: I feel I ought to be on a psychiatrist's couch now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the first session's free.
2: <laughs> um, well, I, I think I'm, I suppose I'm quite resilient. I'm quite tough in that I grew up in a household that was incredibly unstable. Uh, my father went to jail um, and, you know, we had to look after ourselves. So um, I think I'm fairly resilient Um, And I've been incredibly lucky with friendships, very lucky in terms of the husband I married and very lucky with my kids. So I think moving on from quite an unstable childhood, something that is incredibly stable, being a lawyer, married, three kids, that I think has, has me much more grounded than perhaps I might otherwise have been.
1: You just called yourself resilient twice. And I just read an article earlier this week that resilient is the word of 2022, talking about everything that we've gone through globally uh, as a society and humanity, so perfect word. We can't go back in time, but for the benefit of others, in retrospect, would you have done anything differently over the years? Yeah,
2: I would have done. I mean, I, I kept my father at arm's length because I felt he was dangerous. He was dangerous financially. He was dangerous to my mental health, probably, like kids. You know, he, was, you know, he was a very controlling personality. But of course, he also had Alzheimer's in his later years, and I think I didn't need to keep him at arm's length at that point, but I never really, I, I suppose I didn't really understand that, that, that at that point in time. So I would, have, I would have been a bit gentler, I suppose, at that point and a bit more accommodating.
1: And given your life experience, do you think some things are best left unexplored and left alone, or should we always dig for that deeper truth?
2: I would say you always have to dig for that deeper truth. I mean, I think that if you box things up and put them on a shelf at some point, they, they want to come become unboxed.
1: And what advice do you have for someone who may suspect they have family secrets or history based on lies?
2: I think you have to do what feels right for you. Um, I think that if those secrets and lies are bugging you and you know, you've got a lot of stories ghosting around, you don't have to publish a book about it. I mean, it's just sort of circumstantial, basically. Um, but but trying to nail them and write them down and work out what is going on, I think is an incredibly important therapeutic step um, if it's bugging you.
1: When we talked earlier about your father being Jewish, your mother not, does that cause confusion in terms of what your faith is you married you, you mentioned that your husband is jewish you know and, and that play any role in coming to terms with your family story
2: i think it was helpful marrying someone who was jewish who understood this background um, and i think that i mean if it's helpful we celebrate hanukkah and christmas because we are a very confused household clearly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the new norm that's not confused that's the new norm So are there lessons from your book that we should apply to the way we live our lives?
2: Um, I think being truthful and honest about your past and whether or not, as I said, you publish a book, but, but trying to work out where you've come from, I think is generally helpful because it allows my kids to understand me better. And I think, I mean, they're very, they're really proud of the fact that there's a book out there. Um, and they now know about their background in a way that they would never have done had I not done this.
1: And as you research the book, are there any parallels between that era and today's current events that concern you?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, I look at the rise of fascism in Europe, the, the fascism that engulfed Central Europe at that time, and the, the xenophobia and the anti-Semitism, and you can map that across in many, many ways. To how we treat refugees now, and our xenophobia that we exhibit now, and I think that um, you know, look at what happened with Jews getting trapped in the German Reich and then and then dying, and it, you know, there are there are very very strong parallels. They're not the same, but there are some strong parallels as to how we have to react in a humane way towards people who need our help and who are fleeing persecution in their
1: country. You've been described as an accidental author. Do you have any advice for anyone else who might be in your position and might be thinking about writing a book?
2: Stick at it. It's a long road. Um, Do the research. And above all else, make sure you have listed your sources properly and your photos properly. You know exactly where they come from because if you're going to publish, you're going to get asked by some dumb fool lawyer where you got your photos from.
1: And how long did it take you start to finish from you said, hey, you know what, maybe I've got a book here to the point where you've got everything cited and referenced in the back?
2: Probably about three years, which I'm told is really quick. It felt like a long time. Felt like, <laughs> But it. actually, it's apparently it's very
1: quick. So that being said, three years and, and according to you, very quick. Do you think you'll write another book?
2: I've got some ideas, but I think you need to be clear as to why you want to write a book. I've got some interesting things I want to explore still. I don't know whether there's a book there. I mean, almost that's like better judged by other people. I'll do some exploration. I'll do some writing. I enjoy writing. I love writing. I love the whole process of research and writing. But it was really, really interesting.
1: And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't let you talk more about the book and promote it. We want to make sure people in our audience can find The Lost Schindler Cafe. Where can they find your book?
2: All the normal sources. So your independent bookstores find it on amazon um it's published by norton uh it's published in october and um it's a good read and it's got recipes
1: recipes are the key part right there and if someone wanted for you to come and speak with them is there a way to contact you
2: yeah, yeah, and I get I'm, one of the lovely things about this whole gig has been that I get emails every day from people all over the world who wrote the book, who I've never met before, who go, This is just amazing, and I've loved it, or I've made your torta or whatever it is. I mean, I get really, really, sometimes I get whole, you know, whole family histories sent to me. So, you know, um, it's, it's, touched, it's touched a chord with a lot of people, and that's been really, really nice. People have really enjoyed. Um, reading it, learning a little bit about the history, but also that interwoven history with the family story. And I think they've enjoyed that. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I, you can track me down via my law firm. I've got an author's website, which is Um, You could track me down via Norton, Norton often Forward stuff onto me as well.
1: Unfortunately, we can track anybody just about anywhere now. Yep. So Meryl, I've spent the last 45 minutes asking you a lot of questions about the book. What haven't I asked that you want to get out there and share with the audience?
2: Um, I think what's the, the, the whole Holocaust story is a really important story, not just in its own right, but one that we need to bear in mind for how we behave in the future, how things can get out of hand, how really ordinary nice people can behave in a barbaric and murderous fashion. And I think it's understanding and and really taking that to heart that is important. Um, And that's why the story is told through the eyes of a cafe. It's, it's, you know, it's a wonderful place. And, you know, even when you run a wonderful place and your your mission statement is just serving good coffee and cake, you know, things can come, things can go wrong. So yeah, that would be my, 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 my other, my other story.
1: Mariel Schindler, author of the Lost Schindler Cafe. Thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Chris. And as always, thank you to our wonderful audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash chrismeekpublicfigure and on Twitter at Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.